Good morning. Welcome to WCF. We're so glad that each one of you are here. Hope you enjoyed that slideshow that uh, showed you a little bit of what happened all this past week, Monday through Friday. VBS, we had about an average of 230 kids each day, lots of volunteers helping. And so uh, I hope you enjoyed that. And, you know, God did some amazing things. We had some young people accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And so our God is faithful. He's always faithful. As his word goes forth, he pierces the darkness with the light of his gospel. Psalm 89 says, I will sing of the Lord's unfailing love forever. Young and old will hear of your faithfulness. Your unfailing love will last forever. Your faithfulness is as enduring as the heavens. This morning we get to come into the presence of an awesome, holy God. He is our Father, and He loves us when we come into our presence and we look into His eyes and we get to sing to Him and tell Him how much we love Him, how much we appreciate Him. So remember that as we sing this morning. Sing from the depths of your heart this this morning. I invite you to stand and let's sing of His love that's forevermore. We're going to sing.
Good morning. Guy's good, isn't he? All the time. Amazing. Uh, I want to welcome you guys this morning and those of you guys that are watching online, just be able to celebrate a number of different things. One of the first things I want to do is, is just celebrate what God has done with Vacation Bible School this last week. It, it was just amazing. And to give you some statistics, I know Tom gave you a, a couple of them, but to give you an idea of the outreach, we had 275 kids um, register for VBS. Our daily average was 230, 89 volunteers. And that's all well and good. But you know what the best part is? 28 kids gave their life to the Lord. <laughs> Praise God. If you are a VBS worker, I'd like for you guys to stand up if you're in the room, just to recognize you all. Just kind of gives you, give these guys a round of applause, man. A couple of them decided to stay seated. Let's go ahead and let's continue our worship through giving as the ushers come forward. God, we thank you. You're the God that provides. You're amazing. You are marvelous. You are wonderful. Your mercy is new every morning. That you would consider us your kids. God, we thank you. 
We praise you and worship you in every sense of the words. Father, as part of our worship, we want to give to you the first fruits of that which you've given to us. Just to say thank you, to acknowledge the fact that that we recognize that all provision comes from you. May you receive these gifts. Most importantly, may you receive the worship that comes with these gifts. May you be praised. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we taught you a new song that simply talks about thanking God for what he's done for us through salvation. And as you're giving your offering, we just want to teach a few different sections of the song so that in a minute when we worship with it, you'll really know uh, the melody and the lyrics. So just to refresh our memory, it goes like this. Wandering into the night, wanting a place to hide this weary soul.
job. One name is higher. One name is stronger than any grave, than any throne. Christ exalted over all. The only Savior, Jesus Messiah, to you alone, our praise belongs. Christ exalted over all.
in our heart we actually do it this morning we bow our knee we choose that you Jesus are our Lord you are our King and we worship you and we lift you high for we know that as we lift your name high you will draw all men women children to you and we know that we thank you and rejoice for those 23 kids that gave their life to you this week. And we know that as people give their life to you, as the, God, the light of the gospel pierces the darkness that the enemy desires to keep people bound in, we know it's for your honor and for your glory. And you will continue to rule and reign forever.
Father God, what a joy it is and a privilege. And we say thank you for allowing us to come into your presence. And as your kids, you delight when you hear us raise our voices. You delight when you hear us laugh, when you hear us encourage others. You delight in our praises. And you set up residence right in the midst of where we are worshiping you. So we know that you are here because you said where two or three are gathered in your name, you would be in the midst. So we thank you for being with us. We thank you for receiving our offering of worship this morning. You are a great, good God. And we worship you. Teach us this morning, Holy Spirit, what we need to learn in Jesus' name. And all God's people said... Amen. You may be seated. Amen. We think of a thousand hallelujahs. Can you imagine how many more hallelujahs are going to be in heaven when we get there? Woo-hoo. It's going to be awesome. We're going to be in Acts chapter 8 as we continue our, our study in Luke's account of the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the disciples and, and walking through these passages. It really is about the church growing. And sharing the gospel. If I was to ask you, do you know what the gospel is? Could you answer that? You're saying, yep. So then, the next question would be, when was the last time you shared the gospel with somebody? When was the last time that you actually sat down and shared the whole gospel that God created us to be with Him? Our sins have separated us from Him. That the penalty of sin is death, but that Jesus came and paid the price for our sins. And all those that put their faith and trust in Him will have eternal life and have that relationship restored with God. Guess what that was? That was the Gospel. I just shared it with you. So my answer is, I just shared it with you. But the question is, when was the last time that you shared the Gospel with somebody? Why don't you think about that? When was the last time that you actually led somebody into a relationship with Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Actually led them to the Lord? To pray with them? To be saved? When was the last time that happened? I want you to think about that. Now mind you, I'm not laying some kind of guilt trip on you at all. That's not my intention. I'll let Charles Spurgeon do that. Because he said this, Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Oh, wow. We live in a day and age where, where we don't 
view ourselves as missionaries, but really Christians are missionaries. All Christians are on mission. And that mission was established by God Himself in that He had called us into this, this condition of sharing our faith. I did a little bit of research this week, and, and 95% of professing Christians have never led somebody to the Lord. According to Pew Research, 55% of regular church attendees have not witnessed to somebody in the last six months. We're missionaries, and we are. How are we on mission? It's estimated that over 3 billion people in over 7,000 people groups are currently unreached by the gospel. And you're saying, Kerry, well, I, I really can't go out to like Mozambique or, or some of these unreached people groups. But the reality is we look at unreached people groups as being a people group that is in a foreign land. But by definition, an unreached people group is anybody that has been unreached by the gospel. And that is people that are here in Columbia County. Do you realize that there are people in Columbia County that have never heard the gospel? There are people in our own neighborhoods, perhaps even in your own families, that have never heard the gospel within the context of a saving gospel. That is the whole counsel of the gospel. So then I got to think, well, what hinders people from sharing their faith? It's legitimate. I, I, I know that Early on in my faith, it was very difficult to be able to share um, my faith with others. And, and so here are some things that I came up with about things that will hinder you from sharing your faith. Some people will falsely believe it will hurt their relationship. That's a lie. Sharing the gospel will not hurt your relationship. It will enhance the relationship. Because when they come to faith, now you have a brother and sister in the Lord that is, that is inseparable. Some people falsely believe that their lifestyle is enough of a witness. They believe in the concept of silent witness. That's not what Jesus calls to, to do. Some people really don't know their Bible. Therefore, they don't witness. They don't share the gospel. And here's the, probably the most common that I find with people. Some people just think that they're going to mess it up. Let me challenge that one. You think you might mess up the gospel. That's pride. Why? Because you save no one. You save absolutely no one. You cannot mess it up because it's the power of God unto salvation through the Holy Spirit. It is up to you to just be that conduit or that vessel to be able to share that gospel. Paul would state this in Romans 10:14. How will they then call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in whom they have not heard and how will they hear without a what? Preacher. That means you're teaching next Sunday. No, I'm kidding. But we think about this if people, in in God's design and and God does God could evangelize any way he want. God could establish His witness any way He wants because He's God. But He chooses to use you. Why? 
because it is the blessing of evangelism that we see. It is being able to participate. Do you realize when you share the gospel with somebody, you are participating in something that will radically change their eternity? God has chosen you to change someone's eternal destiny by giving to them the powerful Word of God that will translate. All you've got to do is speak forth these words. And it's the power of the Word that changes the lives. That's why you have to go out and share. Can you imagine what our world would be like today if every Christian would be on mission? Can you imagine how it would look? Would homes change? Would communities change? Would cultures change? Would laws change? Absolutely they would. God's called us to be a vocal witness. And that witness means that we have to get out of our comfort zone and go beyond the boundaries that we've even set in our own mind. The only limitation to your witness is what you've said in your head. But God says there's a bigger witness out there for it. We're coming to Acts chapter 8. And the background is God's establishing His church and going beyond the boundaries. Jesus has resurrected from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He empowered the apostles. He's given the Holy Spirit. The church is growing in Jerusalem tremendously. And then now great persecution is existing. Stephen has been stoned to death as he preached the gospel and to the Sanhedrin. And Saul is now being raised up as a primary uh, persecutor of the church. We're picking up now with Philip, who is more or less called Philip the Evangelist, as he takes the gospel beyond the borders of Jerusalem into Samaria, into a place, as we're going to discover, which was kind of a no-man's land, fulfilling, get this, what Jesus said should be fulfilled. Acts chapter 1, verse 8 says this, But you will receive power when, not if, but when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the earth. Have you ever gotten scripture and you go, man, that is a great promise. I get to be a witness. You know what Jesus didn't say? How he's going to get their butts out of the seats. Because it was going to be via persecution. He didn't tell them how they were going to get moved out. He kind of left that part conveniently off. He just said, you're going to go. And through great persecution, the church was moved out of Jerusalem into Samaria, into Judea, Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. And he would use people like Saul in order to accomplish this. And so what we'll see today is that first missionary expansion. And it's picking up again off the death of Stephen. Tertullian said this, The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The church is going to grow as it springboards, as it springboards off the death of Stephen. So let's stand as we read through our passage this morning. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 24. May the Holy Spirit enlighten your mind and your heart as you hear these passages. Saul was in heartily agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. 
And some devout men had buried Stephen and made loud lamentations over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women, and he would put them in prison. And therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began preaching Christ to them. The crowds, with one accord, were giving attention to what was said by Philip as he heard and saw the signs which he was performing. And in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in the city. Now, there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And, all, and they all, from the smallest to the greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, This man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had, for a long time, astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. And even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized... He continued on with Philip, and as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. And now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them, and they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. And now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift without money or with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered him and said, pray to the Lord for me yourselves so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. May God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. So one of the first things that we see in our, our account here is that persecution provides this, this path for evangelism. We all like our comfort zones, don't we? I like to be comforted. I like my routine. I like to hang around the people that, that have already accepted me, that I talk with. And talking to people that I don't know is scary. It's scary because what if they judge me? What if they don't accept me? What if they don't hear my words? All of these things. God knows our makeup and who we are. And the church of Jerusalem had become comfortable. They had the twelve apostles. They were doing the signs, the miracles, and evangelism was taking place. They were in the seat of worship for Judaism. And the gospel had come to the Jews. And they were complete. And they were comfortable. But the fact is, God doesn't want you to sit in being comfortable. God wants you to be a missionary. He did not give the gospel just to the Jews for the sake of the Jews alone but that through the Jews, the nations might hear the truth of the gospel. And so the church was empowered to take the gospel out. The disciples were to be his witnesses. And the church would grow based off of persecution. Persecution in this context is a good thing. 
Not a bad thing. The adversity that is against the church motivates them to get out of their comfort zone. And so this great persecution, verses 1 and 3, arises. And who is the head of this persecution? Is a guy by the name of who? Saul. And it says he heartily agreed with them. He heartily, or, or literally in the Greek it means applauding. you imagine a guy that hates Christians so much that he applauds every time Christians get thrown in jail? This is a guy who hated Christianity. Why? Because he saw it as a cult that was against Judaism. He stood at Stephen's stoning, where the cloaks were laid at his feet. And then he's applauding all the persecution that was being done by the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin to the Christians in Israel. And now he find him becoming the premier persecutor, moving forward and, and leading this out within this. Who was this Saul? His, he was Saul of Tarsus. Tarsus was a south, southern coastal city in Turkey, where we're going to be going, called Cilicia, and, and he lived from A.D. 10 to A.D. 67. He was schooled as a Pharisee, which believed in spirituals and afterlife under Gamaliel. He was a tent maker by trade. We know him as Saul by his Jewish name, Paul by his Roman name within this. He would eventually become a missionary to the Gentiles. What's amazing about this? Here is a guy who, by all accounts, was an ultimate scumbag that comes to faith and writes two-thirds of the New Testament. The transformation is phenomenal of who... Saul was turning into Saul, Paul, that was in this. And how did it happen as we're going to study here in a couple of weeks? Well, Jesus had to knock him off his high horse. Blind him, humble him, and bring him to that day. But now, at this time, he's persecuting the church. And it was on that day, which seems to be the catalyst. On the day that Stephen was killed, murdered. The church, and the word church is used in Acts, it's ecclesia in Greek, means to be called out, the called out ones. The church was birthed and the martyrs were going out. The word martyr that we believe to be those that are persecuted for their faith really just means witnesses. But the witnesses were being put to death for their faith. We think about Peter and John. They were beaten. First they were imprisoned and then let go. And then they were imprisoned and beaten, and now Stephen is killed, and now many others. And if you note in verse 3, it says, men and women. What do you find interesting about that? Well, up until this time, who were, who were the ones that were really being persecuted for their faith in Christianity? Mostly men. But the persecution turns the corner, and now persecutes men and women equally, indiscriminately. You imagine moms and dads, being thrown into jail. What happens to the kids? What happens to them? And how was it happening? It says that Paul was, or Saul was going house to house. What does that mean? Because the church was meeting in houses. There were house churches. Could you imagine getting together for your Bible study on a, a, a Sunday night or Monday night and you got your little fellowship group, maybe 10, 20 of you, 15 of you, whatever the number is, and all of a sudden the door gets busted in? And the, and the enforcers come in and they start grabbing you and take, hauling you off? For what? Because you're studying the Bible. Does that ever happen in our world today? Absolutely it does. 
Absolutely it does. I have a friend that I, that I knew years ago in our college group, and he, he is a Chinese national, but he would come over. He was a fisherman. Imagine me connecting with a fisherman, but... He would, he would come over, but he would tell me accounts of times when they were in their home Bible studies. And they wouldn't have whole Bibles, but they would just have pages that they could stuff into their pocket really quickly. But he remember he was telling me about one time that he was at a Bible study at this guy's house, and they were all there, and there wasn't a, very many, maybe a dozen or so of them. But the door came busting in, and he went out the window to run away in China. Does that happen in our world today? Absolutely it does. Persecution is real. And so these Christians were being scattered. The word scattered is dysphoria. It means to cast seed. Hmm. Scattered. The casting of seed. What is the seed? It's the Word of God. Where is the Word of God hidden? In the hearts of the believer. And so in the scattering, what was going with all of these believers? The Word of God. So wherever they were going, they were taking the Word of God with them. Because they were hiding the Word of God, the teaching of the disciples. And mind you, they didn't have the Bible at that time. What did they have? The oral Word. They got together and spoke the Word together. The teaching of the apostles and of Jesus and the Torah. And they would speak these things together regularly. And that's how they had the Word. And they took that oral Word with them. We're told that Saul was tearing, harassing. That word harassing literally means to tear apart like an animal would tear apart its prey. Paul would talk about that in Acts 22.19 and Acts 26.10-11. Paul's motivation was he was ravaging, harassing, tearing apart. He didn't care. He was just ripping them apart. Can you imagine that kind of a passion? That hatred. And you think, well... Surely that will stop church growth. Nope. It didn't. It just meant that they moved into a different location. We're told in verse 2 that Stephen was honored. He was honored by some devout men. That, that word devout literally means they were Jewish Christians who honored Stephen in his death and burial. Now you think about, well, what, why is that significant? What was Stephen's charge? It was blasphemy. A charge of blasphemy against a Jew would mean that you could not have a normal burial or death. That they would just cast you off. You were an enemy of the, of the synagogue, of the temple within that. You, you were cast out. But these Jewish Christians had got, gathered together and they lamented and they honored Stephen. Why? Because he died a martyr's death in honor. This is the backdrop of the gospel that is going out, of the scattering. And as Luke is giving to Theophilus, the lover of God, the, the recipient of this letter of Acts, he wants him to understand, hey, the, start of the, the birth of the church wasn't easy. It was full of pain. But God did amazing things within this. And that is the way that, that faith goes, that the birth of faith is going to come through pain and suffering and difficulties, but God is greater than all of these things, and you don't need to give up on this. So what do we find? We find Philip going down to Samaria. In verses 4-8, through eight, to be that witness of Jesus, to take the gospel message that he had heard. If you remember 
who Philip was. Philip started out as a servant. He was a Hellenistic Jew, along with Stephen and five other guys that was set aside. Because he was a Hellenistic Jew, he was able to, to speak in Greek to these widows and, and minister to them. So he was bilingual. He understood what it would be like to be mm, not really well looked upon by Jews, but to be in multicultural, we'll call him. And so Philip was sent down and into Samaria. Actually, he went into Samaria. And it says down, but if you look on a map, Samaria isn't down from Jerusalem. It's actually up. It's north of it. But why does he say go down? Because in the Jewish construct and in the Bible, everything that is on Mount Zion is the highest point. And whenever you leave Jerusalem, you're always going down. And every you go to Jerusalem, you're always going up to Jerusalem, regardless of the elevation. Why? Because it was the elevated position. But he would go down into Samaria, into this area, and to be able... And, and why was he going? Because he saw it as a mission field? Not necessarily. It was called self-preservation. It, it's becoming difficult, so I'm going to go out. And I can go out into Samaria... And what did he take with him? He took with him the gospel. Now, again, you've got to understand the Samaria from the Jewish mindset. Samaritans were not really well-accepted people. They were considered half-breeds. You see, in 722 B.C., when the Assyrians came in and they invaded the land, they took the Jews out. When they reoccupied the land, many of the Jews that reoccupied this area married the people that were in the land, the Canaanites. And so now you had these blended marriages that were taking place. These Jews that were coming back in the land marrying Canaanites and marrying in there. So you had this, this cross-cultural existence that was happening in the land of Samaria, very cultural, very tribal. But the Jews in Jerusalem, in Judea, and in Galilee didn't like the Samaritans because they weren't well, we would say full Jews. So they always looked down their nose on them. In fact, so much so, if you were really a good Jew and you were coming from Galilee down into Jerusalem or Jerusalem up to Galilee, you would go all the way to the Jordan River and go all the way around the land of Samaria just so you wouldn't walk through this unclean land. Yet they're in the land of Israel and Philip goes down there. What else is interesting about the Samaritans? The Samaritans had their own version of a Messiah. The Samaritans had their own holy mountain, Mount Gerizim. They had their own concept of, of how the Torah was. It was almost like a nation within a nation. And they had developed their own culture of Judaism within this. And so within this, Philip goes down... And he crosses these borders. And I love the fact that Philip was bold enough to go into the land. But it had already been done. Who had already gone into the land of Samaria to have a conversation with a woman by a well? His name is Jesus. In John chapter 4, you can read about it. In John chapter 4, Jesus had an appointment, a divine appointment, to go meet this woman, a Samaritan woman by the well. And you can read about the account. But he comes to this well, and Jesus says to the woman, can I have some water? 
She says, why are you talking to me? It was midday. She was by herself, which was a clue because women would normally come out during the day or in the, first in the morning, not in the midday. And they have this whole conversation about worship and you worship here and we worship here. And that whole conversation, you read about it. But the fact is, Jesus had already gone into Samaria and presented to the gospel to the Samaritan woman who went back and told the city, the village that she was at, about this man who told her everything that she needed to know that was about her. And, and so the gospel seed had already been planted into that area. Philip goes down into this area. And what does he connect with? Well, in verse 4, he says he goes in and they've been scattered. He went down proclaiming Christ to them, Messiah. And the crowds with one accord were giving attention because they saw the signs and the wonders there were there and the unclean spirits being cast out, the lame being healed. And there was much rejoicing in that city, much like the Samaritan woman. What was Philip doing? The exact same things he saw the apostles doing. Preaching the Christ and affirming it with powers and signs and wonders. Casting out demons, healing the lame with all of this. But I think it's important in understanding how his presentation of the gospel message was there. He preached the Christ. What does Christ mean? Anointed one. Mashiach. Messiah. The one thing that the Jews and the Samaritans all had in common was the fact that they were all looking for a Messiah. And he went and he spoke the language of common Savior. And then he backed it up with signs and wonders and the people were there. He followed this apostolic model. If you want to share the gospel, and you should... And you say, well, I don't know what to say. I don't know how to present it. Here's your clue. Just do it the way that the disciples did it. Share the gospel. How? The way that Jesus did it. And how did they do it? Conversation. Would go and talk with them. Would help meet their needs. Would demonstrate the power of God publicly to them individually and personally and let God bring about the changes that are there. It's Jesus the, is the one that saves and it's important to understand because he was preaching the Christ but it was being backed up by signs and wonders within that which was part of the apostolic movement but he was preaching Jesus. There is a danger in our culture today that many people are believing in signs and wonders and believing that is the basis of their faith. That is not the signs and wonders and miracles is not the basis of your faith. Amen. It is Jesus. I'm still standing, so I'm, I guess I'm okay. Faith in miracles will not save you. Only Jesus will. The other thing that I think it's important is this. The gospel has no prejudices. The gospel should be presented to everybody equally. Regardless of race, gender, socioeconomic condition, Regardless of anything, the gospel is the gospel 
and should be presented equally to all people. And what evangelism does is evangelism exposes the gospel to people. Evangelism is the tool. The gospel is the message. And you need to know that message. The hard part about this is that I find, especially as a pastor, is that presenting the gospel is not always as successful as I would like. And that could be discouraging. Philip is having this great evangelistic event that's happening here in Samaria. And all of these people were coming to faith, including a guy by the name of Simon. In verse 9 through 24, we see this account of Simon that Luke gives to us. He says, Now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city. And astonishing people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great, so much so that they said in verse 10, He is the great power of God. Now, as he's sharing the gospel, and you will do this, as you're sharing the gospel, you're going to encounter all kinds of different people. And he encounters somebody who was an elitist in this culture. His name was Simon Magus, or Simon the Magician that is there. He was a Samaritan, and he was looked up upon the people. He amazed them or astonished them with these great powers. What was so cool about this is Philip's message was greater in power than the message of the magician. And Simon was baffled by this power that is so much greater. Who is this guy that has come with this great message? And and rallying the people after him, he was losing all of his oomph within this. You know what was greater? It was the message of the kingdom of God. It was the message of Jesus. That is better. If you ever think, well, I've got to debate or I've got to go through all this stuff, don't. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, it says this, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. You don't have to debate. You don't have to argue. You don't have to get into fights. Just preach Jesus. Just preach Jesus. Preach the gospel of Jesus. And people were putting their trust in Jesus the Messiah more than Simon the magician. But this, this bothered this guy. Because he was losing his privilege with all of the people. And within this, the other thing that I think is important to understand about Simon is not everybody that is a professor of faith And is baptized are saved. Simon presents to us an example of somebody who looks like they're going through all of the right steps. They're believing and are being baptized, but they're not really saved. This is what we mean by this. Why? Because verses 22-23 tells us he had a wickedness of his heart. This man who was practicing the magic, astonishing people, verse 9, that was called the great power of God, verse 10, and everybody was giving him attention, gave way to the message of the gospel. And in verse 14, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard Samaria received the power of God, Peter and John were there. What Luke does is Luke does something very interesting. He 
comes off of the narrative of Simon coming to faith. And he moves into this condition where he says, this is Peter and John that are coming down from Jerusalem. And what Peter and John are doing is this. They hear about the message of the Samaritans. Tom, can we fix that? Is it my mic or is it a monitor? Give me carols. Sorry about that. Whoa. <laughs> this is God speaking. <laughs> so within this, what we see is the church in Jerusalem was established. Twelve apostles, the Holy Spirit had come upon them in Acts chapter 2. Pentecost had fallen, Holy Spirit had come. But the church in Jerusalem couldn't believe the fact that God would be doing a work in Samaria. That's amazing. How would this happen? How would this come to be that the Samaritans would get saved? So they sent Peter and John down to witness this, to see what's going on. And Peter and John, as the account says, they come down and then they pray over them and they receive the Holy Spirit. Now, one of the things that i got to caution you on in, in this study of, of Acts is try to be very careful on establishing that liturgy that, uh, on salvation. People were getting saved, Acts 2, and then they were receiving the Holy Spirit. There were others that were getting saved, and the Holy Spirit was coming at salvation. Others would be saved. And the Holy Spirit would come upon them, while others would be saved, and then there was a laying hands on them. Multifaceted ways that people were being saved, the Holy Spirit was coming upon them. You say, Carrie, why is that important? Here's this. Man-made liturgy cannot put God in a box. God is going to save the way that God wants to save, and according to His salvation, and, and give the Holy Spirit in such a way that he determines. In John chapter 3, verse 8, and this is, this is important, Jesus says this, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from. For where it's going, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Here is Simon's failure in thinking, and so many in our thinking. We view, in fact, there's a cultist that believe and teach this, that the Holy Spirit is just the essence or power of God, not the person of God. Simon's problem was he viewed the Holy Spirit as an essence or power to be bought, not a person. The Holy Spirit is a person. The third person of the Trinity who dwells within the believer. What we have here is what's called the Samaritan Pentecost. Can we repeat that second service? That was cool. <laughs> Lord have mercy. So within this, what we have is something that is significant. And, and 
it is an authentication. In some churches, they have what's called a confirmation. In other words, people will be baptized as a child, and then later on, uh, they'll be confirmed as an adult, or it's a confirmation that confirms an earlier work. John and Peter show up, and they see the witness that's going on, but they see that the Holy Spirit hasn't come upon them yet, so then they pray and lay hands upon these Samaritans, Jewish apostles laying hands on the Samaritans who are saved, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Why did the Holy Spirit do this? I'll tell you why. Because the body of Christ is not to be divided or siloed. And it is not to be bound by borders, both ethnic or sociological or gender or any of these other things. And so by these apostles, top apostles from Jerusalem coming and laying hands, and the Holy Spirit came upon them as they did in Jerusalem, unifies the Samaritan believers with the Jewish believers into one faith. That's powerful. And so God had determined that this was the means and the methods to be able to do this, to be able to authenticate that ministry within this. And it was all good until Simon shows up. Simon had believed, Simon had been baptized, but Simon did not receive the Holy Spirit as did the others. Why? Well, the text tells us in verses 22 and 23, because his heart was not changed. He never was converted in his heart within this. So he goes to Peter and he says, Peter, let me buy the Holy Spirit. Can you buy a person? What would happen if he bought the Holy Spirit a person? That would make the Holy Spirit his property. Under his control. His slave. We see the wickedness and the guile and we see the, the desire to do this. And Peter says this in apostolic authority, may your money perish with you. Now, can you think of somebody earlier that had a problem with money? That Peter judged? Ananias and who? Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira. Why? Because they was all about money for them. And Peter said, well, you're done. And they died. Simon here doesn't die, but he is definitely judged by Peter. Billy Graham said this, Pride, money, and sex will destroy all ministers. You fall into one of those three categories, and you will fall desperate. The other thing that we know that Simon wasn't saved, because Peter says, You have no portion in this word. That's how it literally reads. You have no portion, and that word portion speaks of inheritance. You have not inherited this word. You're not saved. And he calls for him to what? Repent. Repent. And the sad part about this is Simon does not repent. Simon says, will you pray for me that this bad thing doesn't happen to me? He doesn't mourn over his sin. He doesn't recognize it as sin. He just doesn't want the outcome. Can you think of somebody else who didn't want the outcome of his actions? Judas. Judas didn't want the outcome of his actions. When he realized what he had done, he had gone back to the chief 
priest and he had said, look it, here's your money back, undo it. And he went out and he hung himself. He was remorseful, but not repentant within this. We've got to understand that the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. And it's that salvation and the gospel message that transforms hearts. But it's the heart that has to be transformed. Not When you share the gospel, when you evangelize and you take it across the borders, and I love the fact that the gospel is moving into Samaria, and now Saul is coming on board, which Saul is going to take the gospel into Asia. It's all part of God's plan in getting the gospel out beyond the borders. Do you realize that you're a beneficiary of the gospel going beyond borders? Because somebody preached the gospel beyond the borders of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And the gospel preached beyond the borders is the power of God into salvation. What is your border? What is the place that you're not crossing, that you are not sharing the gospel, that that you should be? D.L. Moody said this, When a man is filled with the word of God, you cannot keep him still. If a man has got the word, he must speak or die. That's powerful. Filled with the word of God, you will speak the word of God. Will it be hard? Yeah, it will be. But persecution provides that path for evangelism. So walk the path. Share the gospel and evangelize. You may not always be successful. That's fine. Not your problem. You have one job. Share Jesus. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you that you've given us the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. Lord, I thank you that you've given us a hope, an eternal hope. And that hope is grounded and founded in Jesus. Lord, I pray that even now that you would work in our hearts to convict us of of our sin, that our hearts might be fully cleansed before you and used. And while we're praying, think about in your mind, what is the boundary? What is the border? What is the limitation that you've set that you refuse to cross with the gospel? Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a prejudice. Surrender it unto God. That we would see the gospel go forward and lives change. God, we thank you. Holy Spirit, do that work in us. And may we preach the gospel without borders. In Jesus' name, amen. Everyone needs compassion, love that's never failing. Let mercy fall on me. Everyone needs forgiveness, the kindness
Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 6.30 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.